Okay, if you would, please turn to the book of Acts, Acts of the Apostles. We'll be working our way through Acts chapter 24, verses 1 through 21. Paul's trial before the governor, Felix. Let's pray. O Lord, as we have sung, all who are truly yours, born of the Spirit, we know how utterly desperate we are for you to work in us. And we do trust your word that you do that And that in the midst of our brokenness and sin and and as you discipline and turn us back in the midst of stubbornness and pride because of Christ, during those times we know you will hold us fast. We're in need of your work in us together this morning over your word. Do it, Lord. Convict us. Convict us with this mixture of grief and joy. Joy in Jesus because of what we ought to grieve over in us. Your ways are profound. Let us taste of them this morning to the glory of our Lord. Amen. This passage this morning demonstrates that we who are Christians should be a people who seek to live a life of integrity by seeking constantly to clear, have a clear conscience before God and before other people. In the midst of Paul's defense in this courtroom, he says in verse 16, I always Take pains to have a clear conscience toward God and toward man. He he teaches us that we should not be those who fudge the truth. Paul is adamant to be a truth speaker. And as a result, he gains a clear conscience. He says in this text that one of those keys is that he informs his mind, his heart, his conscience with Moses, the law and the prophets, the scripture. 
learning to live with and to maintain a clean, clear conscience is what this passage ultimately teaches us, that it is crucial in the Christian life. And so we see this morning there's a pathway in this passage that tells us walk this way. In your life, take pains. Work hard at having a clear conscience before God and before man. All right, so let's go back now to the text. Remember the context. There was a plot to assassinate Paul in Jerusalem by the Jews and even the leadership of the Jews. And it got discovered. It got found out by Paul's nephew and thus the Roman tribune snuck Paul out of Jerusalem at night with 470 soldiers and sent him all the way up north to Caesarea to the governor, Felix. And he put him in jail. And that's where we pick up in chapter 24, verse 1. And after five days, Paul's been there now, five days in Caesarea, the high priest... Ananias came down with some elders and a spokesman, one Tertullus. They laid before the governor the case against Paul. So we've already met Ananias, the high priest, right? When Paul was before the Sanhedrin, he had Paul slugged in the mouth right after Paul opened his mouth. He was a very bad dude. We know this outside of the Bible in history. Ananias became high priest in AD 49 up until 59. He's got two more years. This is AD 57. King Agrippa, who we'll run into, is the one that, okay, you're done, Ananias, and fired him, essentially, because to be high priest, you had to be in good cahoots with Roman rule. He was murdered by some Jews in AD 65 because they couldn't stand the way he would play with in the Roman hierarchy. That's him. Now, though, he travels all the way up to Caesarea to be present, to be there at Paul's trial. This is showing to the governor Felix how important this issue is. To the Jews. And he hired a dream team lawyer named Tertullus. Verse 2. And when the governor had summoned Paul, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying, Since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation in every way and everywhere, we accept this with all gratitude. But to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly. All right, that right there was the opposite of what Paul models to us. Paul cares about his conscience. Thus he cares about lying. This was bald face lying. 
Tertullus, the lawyer, didn't believe a word he said when he's kissing up to Felix. He knew, and we know historically, actually, that Felix and his governing and ruling here was one of the most corrupt and incompetent ever to represent Rome. Palestine was a mess of criminality under Felix's leadership. The lawyer Tertullus now, on behalf of the Jewish leadership, then brings three charges, three accusations against Paul. And see, he knows Rome doesn't mess around with those who threaten Rome's peace. He knows that. So we see in verse 5a, he accuses Paul of being an instigator. This is what he means here. Not just, well, he's, he's bothering us Jews theologically. That's not what he's saying. He's saying he's an instigator against the Roman government. 5a. For we have found this man a plague, one who stirs up riots among all the Jews, like the zealots wanting to do violence against Roman soldiers and stuff. He does this throughout the whole world. That's his first charge. Secondly, he says he's a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. So he frames Paul here as a, a leader of the Nazarene sect, which, which is Tertullus' way of saying that this is a leader of an anti-Roman political party. And finally, Tertullus claims in verse 6, he even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. Now, that's a significant charge if the first two don't get Paul the death penalty. Because Rome, the governor Felix, he, he had the power to hand Paul or anyone else over to the Jewish court to deal with their own if they are guilty in any way of profaning the Jewish temple. And then in verse 9 we read, The Jews also joined in the charge affirming that all these things were so. And the prosecution rested. Now the defense. Paul represents himself. Here comes the Christian, the Christian man. It's his turn to be a man of integrity, of character, of honesty. Verse 10, and when the governor had nodded to him to speak, Paul replied, knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. No fluff, no bootlicking. He simply states the facts like some of us have seen over the last couple weeks in the Senate. The lawyers get up and every time, of course, obviously, Judge Roberts is up there. Your Honor, it's what you do. It's what he does. He acknowledges his authority. And that's it. Because he has a conscience that he cares about. 
Paul then proceeds to dismantle each of Tertullius's accusations. Verse 11. You can verify that it is not more than 12 days since I went up to Jerusalem. Okay, why is he saying that? He's basically ridiculing Tertullius's accusation. I've been here for five days. It wasn't even 12 days ago when I arrived at Jerusalem. There is not nearly enough time for me to be the person he's talking about, this charismatic leader of a bunch of Jews rioting against Rome. He goes on, in fact, and they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city of Jerusalem. Okay, nowhere, not even on the street corners, much less all the numerous synagogues or the temple. Neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me. He's a truth teller. The burden of proof, oh, Governor Felix, is on them. Paul's integrity, his living in the presence of God, enabled him to give a calm, straightforward reply to the charges against him. Christians are called to be lovers of truth, not liars, not those who tell stories mixed with half-truths in order to mislead people for the purposes of our own self-defense. Paul spoke the simple truth to the charges. He knows he is not a political leader. He knows he is not about gathering crowds in order to come against the Roman government. So he speaks the truth. If they would have accused him, this man goes around, oh Felix, preaching that Jesus from Nazareth has been resurrected from the dead, and that's the only way people can be saved, Paul would have stood there and said, I plead guilty to that charge. Because that's the truth. But this, what they charge him against? is not true. I've only been here 12 days. How ridiculous that I'm this, this charismatic band leader here in Jerusalem. Paul knows the truth. He speaks the truth. And that's why he knows verse 13. Neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me. Then in response to the second charge of being a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. You know, Jesus is from Nazareth. But what he denies here is not his Christianity, not being a follower of Jesus. He doesn't deny that at all. He denies this, this tricky, inaccurate twist that Tertullus put on it. This Nazarene sect, as if it were a political party. He says to that, no, verse 14, but this I confess to you, that according to 
the way. In the first numbers of decades of Christianity in the Jewish homeland, in Palestine, that's what Christianity was called. The way. The way to salvation. The way to God. The way to the Lord. That there, not he doesn't buy his twist of a Nazarene sect. What, according to the way, which they call a sect, yes, I worship the God of our fathers. Believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So he says, yes, I belong to Christ. I believe in him. I belong to the way. But far from it being a political party, we are committed to following the way of the Lord. The Lord of the Hebrew scriptures to which I hold. And it is those scriptures that Jesus from Nazareth fulfilled. So in front of the high priest, in front of the Jewish leadership, and in front of Governor Felix, Paul is saying, I'm living my life as a true Jew in line with the Old Testament. Being a Christian, Gentile or Jew, never means rejecting the Old Testament scriptures. They are the very foundation of Christianity. They point to Christ Jesus who fulfilled them. As Paul is testifying, he's also, the way he puts it, purposely stripping naked Ananias, who's a Sadducee, and the other Sadducees, there's probably some Pharisees there, but the other Sadducees who are there and who deny that there is any life after death. They claim scripture which teaches the resurrections, implying they're the ones who deny what the scriptures teach. In response to the third charge of desecrating the temple, begin with verse 17. Now, after several years, I came to bring alms, which we know he did. He had been collecting an offering from all the Gentile churches and all the differing regions of Asia and Galatia and Macedonia and Achaia and all those different city churches. He'd been doing that for a few years to bring this large offering to help the poor, struggling Jewish church in Jerusalem. So I came. To bring alms to my nation and to present offerings, which we know he did. He got there. James had a suggestion. The other elders, okay, I'll take these four Christian Jewish brothers into the temple and pay their, their fees and for their Nazarite vows. And Paul had to go through a seven-day process of purification. So here I was. I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings. While I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult. Which we know because we read about it earlier. Which he's going to say in a minute. Some Jews from Ephesus 
that knew Paul and hated Paul's guts. They're unconverted to Jesus. Jews, they screamed out, that's the guy, and they got a big riot going and almost beat him to death. And so Paul says, nothing's going on, peace and quiet, but some Jews from Asia. And then he just, he doesn't finish the sentence. They ought to be here before you to make an accusation should they have anything against me. Or else, let these men here, let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they have found when I stood before the council, the Sanhedrin, a few days before. Other than I said this one thing, that I cried out while standing among them. It is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. So Paul, in his defense, says, where are my accusers? They're not here because there really are none to accuse me of what they say I did. He is saying to the judge, to Governor Felix, this is not really about Rome. In Rome's Security from rebellion. This is a theological issue about the scriptures. And about Jesus from Nazareth. Whom we proclaim fulfilled them. By dying on a cross and rising from the dead. Your honor, it has everything to do with those who believe in the gospel. And those who reject it. And we'll see. Not this week. Felix and his wife, tell us some more about that gospel thing. But that's what Paul is saying before them. So now, let's go back to verses 15 and 16. In order to see the connection between verse 15 and verse 16. To see what it is that drove Paul in his daily life to work hard and having a clear conscience before God and before other people. 15b. There will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. And so I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. Paul saying, I live in the light of the God of truth, the God of justice, the God of right and wrong. If you're in the habit of fudging the truth or telling outright lies in order to make yourself look good to others, 
Life must be a real, real mess. What did I tell that person? Okay, wait, wait. Oh, this person. Oh, how did I twist the story for them now? It's got to be a mess. Always trying to remember what you said. But if you just tell the truth, you don't have to worry about that. Just, you might not even, I don't even know what I said before. Let me, but here's the truth. And if you're a truth teller, it's going to match up. I mean, unless our brains start to go haywire, we can't remember what is true anymore. Hopefully it's not coming. Those who don't pursue having a clear conscience between themselves and God or between themselves and others, they're going to live. And let's just talk about Christians right now. Soon we're truly born again. To the extent or how long we do that, you're going to live with a conscience that's condemning you. You're going to live with feelings of guilt. Or worse. Or something worse than that. They will go into denial of their guilt. And slowly sear, harden their conscience. Now, let's, let's go back and let's make sure that we get this straight. Paul, left to his own, was a guilty sinner. Paul, of his own, is a guilty criminal before the court of God. But Paul is that now the one who by God's grace has been acquitted. Acquitted of all guilt, all sin, all wrongdoing in Jesus Christ. He's a new person. He's a new creature. He's born again. He's indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And yet, you might be able to relate to this. He's still a sinner. Actually, we saw two weeks ago, Paul sinned publicly there in front of the Sanhedrin in his losing his cool and lashing out in vindictive anger against the high priest, whom he claims he didn't know was the high priest. I'll believe him on that one. And so, not only did we see it, Paul saw it. And he rectified his conscience. And he confessed Sin. Paul models for us Christians that we are now, as Christians, because we are Christians, we by definition are in a battle to get and to maintain a clear conscience before God and before man. He says, I always take Pains, meaning 
I always strive. I daily, daily work at having and keeping a clear conscience. When no one else is around, no one else knows before me and God. And then before other human beings. So what is this battle? Paul makes it clear. It doesn't come easy to him to have a clear conscience. And it doesn't come easy to any of us who are Christians because we sin. And that's why it doesn't come easy. The sin nature is still with us. Oh yes, we are so different than before because the Holy Spirit lives within us. That's the precious gift of fighting for a clear conscience. This battle is taking pains Taking pains of maintaining a clear conscience. That is a, being a truth teller, a life of integrity, being open, examining oneself. So let me, let me just do what maybe I should have done up, up front. So think about it, right? Look. We are justified by faith alone, all of us who are in Christ. Which means before God, all of our sins and all of our guilt have already been paid for by Jesus on the cross. And he was raised for our justification. God sees us as perfectly righteous, not because of a righteousness of our own, but of Christ. Don't you believe that, Paul? Okay, it's just, okay now, yeah, he does. Then why did he say, I work hard to have a clear conscience toward God and toward others? What must he mean by that? What is this Christian living that is meant to be Actively pursuing a clear conscience before God and before others. Here's my shot at what he must mean. That in light of the scriptures and what they teach about right and wrong and good and evil. And, and in light of, in the context, in light of the resurrection of the body someday which brings then the judgment that is to come. Paul is saying, in light of that, as a Christian who is justified, I examine my heart. And I examine my actions constantly. And I confess my sins when I see them. When I sin against God, I confess it to God. And when I sin against God, always sin against others as against God. And I sin actually against that person or my spouse or my kid or that person at work or 
what, whoever else that I gossiped about because I really want people to think badly about them. When I sin against that person, I go to them and confess it and ask for forgiveness. So I think what he means by a clear conscience that he fights for is that when I don't have any unconfessed sin that I can see, and I'm not conscious of that, okay, that's what's clear, okay, I'm not conscious of any unconfessed sin or any unturned away from sinning, if I'm not conscious of that, then, then, right there, I have a clear conscience. For we know 1 John 1, 9, if we who are Christians and who are already justified confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So with that as a definition, then let me just lay out a few practical, okay, this pursuit of pursuing a clear conscience. First and foremost, it is vital to constantly inform your mind, your heart, and your conscience with the Word of God. Let the Word of God do its work. Why? See, conscience is a moral thing. Dogs don't have it. Dolphins don't have it. Human beings made in God's image do. And you can say, well, then God has put within all hearts, saved or unsaved, we all have a conscience, right? But since the fall of man, conscience alone will not suffice. It is not a safe guide. But conscience, constantly being informed by the word of God, by truth, the truth of the scripture, Conscience becomes more and more of a healthy guide. See, the problem is, conscience is be able to see our sin, confess our sin. But think about it. Sin itself that we're supposed to recognize and see. Sin itself is what is so tricky to try to sear our conscience. Don't let that go too long. It becomes easier. People can be convinced that they are not only okay, but they're doing the very will of God himself and have a clear conscience while he is apprehending and jailing, and sometimes having killed other human beings based upon their belief in Jesus. That was Paul. His conscience was not a safe guide before he came to Christ. It was utterly seared. If we just compare ourselves with that nasty neighbor down the street, our seared conscience will always conclude, I'm okay. Look at that guy. But compare your actions. Compare your motives. Compare your thoughts and your desires up 
against the Bible. And that sword becomes by the Holy Spirit a scalpel in the hand of our loving Savior. We all know where I'm gonna, what I'm going to read, I think. <clears throat> Hebrews 4, 12 to 13. Hear the word of the Lord. For the word of God is living and it's active and it's sharper than any two-edged sword piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow. And it, the word of God, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, the word. But all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him with whom we must give account. So first, feed your conscience, your soul, your mind, your worldview. The word of God, which leads to the second. Live before God on a heart level. Not merely action level, but a heart level. Turning from and confessing every wrong motive and attitude and word spoken or deed done. It's not our sin that does us in. It's our denial of it. It's our rationalizing it. Our refusing to take responsibility for it and to confess it. When we do, Paul says, this is that Christian activity of Gaining and regaining or maintaining a clear conscience. In 1 Timothy 1, to listen to something, Paul, think about it. He's going to say, what is so important about the gospel is that what it does in the Christian is causes them to love others, really. To care about others and to look at them and do unto them as they would have others to do unto you. But then Paul says there are three things going on in the Christian from where that loving others happens. Listen, listen to what he says those three things are. 1 Timothy 1, starting with verse 5. Timothy, the aim of our charge, what we're about, is love. Okay, that's the main thing. Here it is. That's the goal. And here he means loving others. The aim is love. That, watch this. Where's that come from? Love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Conscience. But look at the next words. 
certain persons by swerving from these have wandered away into vain discussions. And jump down to verse 19. He says it this way. Timothy, that you may wage the good warfare. So here's the battle. Paul understands this is a war we're in. That you may wage the good warfare, Timothy, holding faith. And one other thing. Holding faith in the gospel in Christ and conjunction a good conscience. Paul says this is so important because the very next words he says again is this. By rejecting a good conscience, some have made shipwreck of their faith. Feed the word, live with God on a heart level. And then thirdly, when we have sinned against another person horizontally, we need to ask for forgiveness for our sin. There are intended sins that we Christians do. Consciously, we do sin. I mean bad. I mean to hurt you with my words, spouse or child or friend. I mean bad by what I say or what I do or the gossip that you might even not know about that I am pricked for doing. We need to ask for forgiveness for our words and actions. Now, There are other times where what we say or what we do, people are hurt. And you didn't sin in the sense of you did not intend to sin. What do you do? You love. Love should dictate, and we know sometimes we love easily, sometimes it's hard. It has to do with our heart's condition. If you actually care about the person and you realize, really? What I said caused you pain? And sometimes even you're crying while you're telling me? I've had this experience. You don't slough that off, but you also don't lie. You don't own something you don't own. But, you, but one thing you can clearly own right there, without trying to figure out all the psychological and family of origin issues or whatever, how that got twisted that way, if it did, is that... I, I please forgive me that what I did or what I said or whether it's a blind spot I wasn't even conscious of because I clearly wasn't thinking to hurt you whatever that is forgive me it pains me that you you were hurt but I didn't intend that and finally back again to make it clear in this context our very deepest motivation for being a person of integrity, telling the truth, owning our sin, confessing our sin. The deepest motivation is the reality of eternity and the judgment that is to come. Paul is clear that his practice of taking pains, working hard, to maintain a clear conscience before God and before man 
it stems from the certainty of the resurrection of both the just and the unjust. Quote, there will be a resurrection of both the just. Now that's referring to those who are just because of Christ. They're in Christ. They have been acted upon, called justified. There will be that resurrection of the saved and the unsaved, of the just and the unjust. So I, Paul, always take pains to have a clear conscience toward God. And a clear conscience toward man. And so because there is a judgment day that the unsaved and the saved will stand before in the resurrection of our bodies, we who have been declared justified in Christ should go on repenting. Repenting of our, our sins, examining our hearts, trusting in the cross of Christ and pursuing a clear conscience before God and other people. Father, there's so much more I know I could say with no time. But may every soul in here feel the weight of this and feel the beauty of Christ's atonement. That we do this activity in the safety of your arms, in the safety that your arms will always hold us fast. Oh, may your gospel continue to empower us, your people. That we would find a kind of joy and an excitement and a worship and a prayerful life and a Bible saturation and, and interacting with each other and in the world will find a kind of joy in self-examination because we stand upon the rock of Christ, our Redeemer. Amen.